behind that? What is Mount Zion? What, what is that exactly? The term Zion that we see here is used three different ways throughout the pages of sacred scripture. And again, this is where we must define what this is and how God uses it. And again, it all comes together. It'll all, if you will, come together in the Lord's end for sure. And I want you to see this again. First of all, the term Zion, as we know, is used by God. It's a synonym throughout the Old Testament for the city of David, amen, the, the, the city of Jerusalem. So I want us to see this. There's an earthly Zion, there's a millennial Zion, and there's a heavenly Zion. And so you must indeed define what the scripture is saying. And again, as I always say, context, context, context. The context will define for you what he's speaking of. Let's look at a couple of them here together this evening. Quick, the Zion, what, is the, what does the Bible say concerning this glorious city. Look at Second Samuel. I want you to see this again. The earthly Zion, and again, the scripture will define for us very clearly what God is speaking concerning this. Look at Second Samuel chapter 5, if you would. And again, we're going to see here, again, just for definitional purposes, this, again, is going to help us in our eschatological understanding of, uh, of what God is speaking here in the book of Revelation. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, and uh, look there, if you would, uh, at verse uh, number 3. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, look at verse number 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and the king David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come hither, thinking David cannot come hither, come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up from the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are uh, hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. So again, for the first time here we see in Scripture that really what's taking place and unfolding here is really the fortress of the city of Jerusalem, pre-Israelite. So what David is doing here is that he is conquering the area, if you will, the cities, amen, that are soon to come become the city of David, which is what he does here. He, this is the earthly city of David. In fact, God has said, and again, over and over, brothers, we don't have time tonight. If you went through scripture, you would see over and over again how God uses this terminology concerning the earthly city of David, amen, the Zion, the Jerusalem. And so, uh, again, it is a synonym that God uses over and over again in the Old Testament concerning earthly Jerusalem. But I want you to see here what God says concerning earthly Jerusalem. Again, this is the earthly Zion, and so we're trying to define what exactly is John speaking of in Revelation. Well, the earthly Zion here is defined. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. Again, just a couple of verses this evening to help us to, again, understand that definitionally, contextually, the Bible will always tell us exactly what God is speaking of concerning that. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 49. Look what God says concerning earthly Zion, concerning earthly Jerusalem, concerning the earthly city of David, if you will. Chapter 49, look there at verse number 14. Look what the Bible says. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. 
Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Again, this is the earthly Zion. This is the earthly city of Jerusalem that God chose, amen, to have as the capital of Israel, that God used King David to bring, and he brought them into the earthly Zion, the earthly city of Jerusalem. In fact, God says, I've inscribed the walls on my hands. They are ever before him. And so, again, this is clearly, brother, the earthly city of Jerusalem, the earthly Zion that's being spoken of. Zion is also used in a prophetic sense. And again, brethren, as we look at these things together this evening, it's going to take us a little while to get through this, but I want us, to, again, to have a clear understanding of what John is speaking of because, believe you me, when you study this out and you look, <laughs> brothers and sisters, at what some men say concerning our text, it is a stunning thing. The, the wild speculations and the, the unbiblical conclusions, it's, it's stunning. And then what that does then, brothers, what, is it then takes your eschatology and it warps it so that you don't have a good, sound, foundational understanding of what John is writing there in the book of Revelation. It's a stunning thing. So Zion is used in a prophetic sense where it speaks of Jerusalem as the future capital city, the millennial Zion. As I said, there's the earthly Zion, then there's the millennial Zion. And so, again, we're going to let the Bible define that for us this evening. And the millennial Zion is where the king, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will initially be enthroned. And so I want to, again, look at a couple of portions of scripture concerning the millennial Zion and what the Bible says about the earthly king who's going to come and going to reign there during the millennial reign of Christ. Well, Psalm chapter 2, look there if you would. Again, we're just going to look at a couple of portions of scripture again. There's many, as I said, we don't have time, brothers to, and sisters, to um, you know, unpack the whole thing. But just a couple of examples, which is what I always like to give in Scripture. Let the Scripture speak for itself. Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse number 6 there. Again, a very, a very familiar portion of Scripture. And again, we understand that the Trinity of God is speaking here. The Holy Spirit speaks in verses 1 two, three, and four, and five, and here in verse six begins the speaking of Jehovah, the speaking of God the Father, and listen to what he says, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of what? Of Zion, and again, brethren, this is a future, this is something off into the future, look at verse number seven, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day I have Forgot, I have begotten thee. And so, again, we see here again God definitionally defining for us what this is. God is going to set his king in Zion. The Jehovah God himself, the Father, will see and bring things to pass that, so that when his son comes again in his second advent, he will indeed be set up as king in the millennial Zion. It's a crazy and stunning thing how clear scripture really is. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Again, just a couple of scriptures as we kind of work our way along here. I want you to see that <clears throat> Isaiah, again, the great Old Testament prophet, the great Old Testament Christ preacher, preached more about Christ than any other Old Testament prophet did. And uh, again, he unfolds. God had given him, if you will, the inspiration. He brought him along and revealed many future things to him. In fact, Isaiah is the one that speaks of the type of government 
that's going to be taking place during the millennial reign. It's not going to be a democracy, brothers. It's going to be a theocratic. It's going to be theocracy. It's going to be God, Jesus Christ, a divine ruling of God himself. This is what we're going to see. And Isaiah reveals that to us here in this text. And then right after he reveals the government that's going to be taking place during the millennial reign, he reveals to us the gloriousness of the millennial Zion, the millennial Jerusalem. So look there in chapter 1. Let me just show you this. The millennial government, a theocracy, a government by divine guidance under the headship of Christ. This is what's going to be taking place. Look there at verse. This is why when we pray tonight, as Brother Dean said, and as we often say, I'm so thankful, brothers, that I trust and believe in a sovereign God, and as Vicki said, who's going to take care of us. Amen? Because absolutely, positively, we must believe that. We must trust in what he's doing, even when it's bleak and it looks dark and it looks unholy. Above it all, as we heard our good brother not too long ago talk about how things in heaven don't appear as they do on the earth. It's an amazing thing. Sovereign God working through his glorious thing. Look at the government here in Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verse 26. Look there, if you would. Look what the Bible says. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her covenants with righteousness. And so what's, what Isaiah is revealing here again is the theocracy of Christ, his reign during the millennium. It's going to be a glorious time, brethren, for, to see our Savior reigning in such a fashion. In fact, if we go down to chapter 2, you're going to see here again the millennial Zion. You're going to see a future time of global peace. It's a stunning thing. And Isaiah speaks of it, and we're going to look at Micah. Micah speaks of it. It's something, brethren, that has been clearly revealed in Scripture to us. This is not some secret thing that we can't understand or that's not been revealed to us. Look there, if you would, at chapter 2. Look at verse number 1. You'll notice the millennial Zion and then a future time of global peace. Look there, if you would, at verse number one. And the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and there shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. And out of Zion, there it is, there's the millennial Zion, the millennial city of David, the millennial city of Jerusalem. Out of Zion, the Bible says right there, shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, again, there's the theocracy, there's the government ruling by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The law of God will go forth, and he will rule there with an iron fist. Now, again, this is what we see coming from the millennial Zion. Look there, if you would, as we continue on. The Bible says there, uh, as I continue, verse 3, and from For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke, rebuke many people. Listen, global peace. And they shall beat their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. 
Again, during this glorious reign of Christ in his millennial Zion, in the city of Jerusalem, the millennial city of Jerusalem, there's going to be a theocracy, a perfect, glorious theocracy. And brothers and sisters, I can't wait to see it. I mean, we're going to be gone. If you believe what I believe and the Lord tarries, we're going to be gone out of here by this time. But gloriously, we shall watch and we shall praise his holy name for what he's doing. Amen. As he reigns in righteousness in this millennial Zion, this glorious city of Jerusalem. Look at Micah. Just again, a couple of them here. This is Isaiah himself revealing it to us. But again, isn't it wonderful when God, when he, you know, I always say to people, how many times does God have to say something before it's true? Well, well, once for sure, amen, just once. But when he says it again, when he reveals it again by inspiration to another prophet of God, and he says, write this down, this is what's going to be taking place. Again, in the millennial Zion, we're going to have, if you will, this glorious government of Christ, and there's going to be peace, a global peace like you've never seen as he rules. And Micah certainly tells us of that as well. Look at what the little prophet, well, not the little, the minor, let me say that word, and it's only minor because it's a few chapters. It's not because he's less or means less, it's just he is included as one of the minor prophets. But there's a glorious teaching here. Look at verse number 2, Micah chapter 4. Look at verse number 2. Here again we have the millennial Zion. We have a gathering of Christ's uh, people in the millennial reign. But look at verse number two. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and, he, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There it is again. Simply, Micah's what? Simply affirming what Isaiah has told us, and he's affirming what God's going to do. Again, this glorious, if you will, reigning of Christ. So we have it here as you consider the global time of peace. Look at verse 3. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against a nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig. What an amazing, glorious thing that, that Micah is revealing to us under the fig tree. And none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all the people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And again, the next verse, in that day. In that day. Well, what day? That's the glorious day that the Lord Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom. In that day, this is again the ingathering of the Jews, the ingathering of the elect of Israel. Verse 6. In that day, said the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth forever and ever. Look at verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, that's Jerusalem, the city of David, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And again, this is glorious, this glorious teaching that we see here tonight as far as Micah is saying. There's this global peace that Christ is going to bring through the theocracy, through the law of God, and through his, his reigning. 
And then we're going to see the gathering of God's remnant, the gathering of the people of Israel, the elect Jews that he's going to gather together. And again, keeping in mind that where we are at in the text, that's who we're talking about. This is who is being spoken of, brethren. It's not the church, and it's not this, and it's not that. It is indeed the nation of Israel whom God is going to, again, as we see in our text here, even in Micah, gather once again together. Look at one more New Testament portion of Scripture for it. Look at Romans chapter 11. And again, we, we know this Scripture well. We read it a lot. It's, it's amazing, again, as you study this out and you ponder and you think and, uh, and you meditate as, uh, as, you med- as you meditate on the Scriptures. It really is quite a glorious and wonderful thing for us to behold. We really, again, sometimes don't realize how glorious it really is. Look at verse 26. And again, brethren, we have read this scripture. We know this scripture. But I like to hear it ring in my own ears. And I pray you do too. And so all Israel shall be saved. And again, it's important to keep in mind that it doesn't mean everybody in Israel is going to get, get saved. It's every believing Israelite, the elect, those who will indeed be drawn by God, those who indeed will come during the tribulation period. Look what the Bible says. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of where? Zion, the deliverer. There it is again. Zion, the deliverer. And we remember, of course, this is definitely pertaining to Christ's second advent. Why? Because at his first advent, he was where? (laughs) Anybody remember where he was born at and where he was hanging out at? It was in Bethlehem, right? So this is clearly his second advent. He's going to come again to the, to the, if you will, the millennial Zion, that place where he will reign as the Lord. And the Bible says there, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Again, brethren, Jacob is not the church. We are not Jacob. Jacob is Israel. That's who it is. And so we're going to, again, see him reigning in the millennial Zion. Now, there's one more. Again, this is why it takes a little time. Again, definitionally, amen, as we look at this. The third Zion that we see in Scripture is used in conjunction with the heavenly Jerusalem. So, again, you've got the earthly Zion, you've got the millennial Zion, and then you have the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. And so, again, definitionally, you have to, you have to define it, or you'll be interjecting and putting, you know, crossing them over and that kind of a thing, and we must not do that. God has divided that, and so we must divide it so that we can rightly divide the text. That's why it's so important for us this evening. Let us look again at the heavenly Zion, the, if you will, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Again, that also is in the book of Revelation. Look back at Revelation chapter 21. This, again, is the heavenly Zion. We have the earthly Zion, we have the millennial Zion, and then we have the heavenly Zion, which, again, is the eternal city, where God has <coughs> chosen to rest himself there along with his people. Look at verse Revelation 21. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her, husband, for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and they and be their God. In verse 4, again, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, if you will, the heavenly city is going to be completely changed. As we are there, who we are, how we are made up, it's a stunning thing as we are there. Look what he says in verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There should be no more death, 
neither sorrow nor crying. Don't you ever, you read that verse and you, <laughs> you wonder what kind of change God makes. Because when we die, we can think, right? I mean, we know this. We are aware we're in heaven with the Lord Jesus. We're immediately in his presence. And yet, some way, somehow, in his miraculous working, we're not going to remember the friends and the relatives who are lost. I mean, if any time you're going to cry for a lost one, it would be when you're in, in the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's going to take all that away. And miraculously, I don't understand it, and I don't think many people can understand that, what that is. But he says, no more death, no sorrow, no crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Again, brethren, this is indeed the heavenly Zion. This is the heavenly city of Jerusalem that the Lord God is bringing to pass. And then one more, just again to confirm it. Look at Hebrews. The author of Hebrews tells us much about it in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 12. Again there, just <clears throat> the author here is led by the Spirit of God to include this in the book of Hebrews. So I want us to turn there and just read that together. The heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse number 22. Again, a very familiar to those of us who read the New Testament a lot and study the New Testament a lot. The Bible says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and the blood sprinkling that speaketh better things than Abel. So again, we see here again, even the author of Hebrews is referring to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. So we see in the Bible that there's definitely, over and over again, three terms that are used. But contextually, as I always say, as we're looking at it here in the book of Revelation, the context will tell you and will tell me what, uh, if you will, God is speaking of. So as we look now back, at Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 1 again as we see that there. So this Zion, I believe, is <laughs> the earthly Zion, of course. And so, but many, again, you read, you read what men think. It's, it's a stunning, amazing thing what they come up with and the, and the stretches and the reaches that they have to, to make it pigeonhole fit into their eschatology is a stunning thing. Look there again. Look again at the Jewishness of our text. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, again, Jewish. And with him, an 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, again, brothers, this is the second time that the 144,000 are mentioned. It's a stunning thing. Now, some people say, well, it's not the same. It is the same. It's the same that we saw that God mentioned at the beginning of the tribulation. What we have here, brethren, we're coming up on the end of it here, and so we're seeing this victory. This, this, this victory that is unveiled here in this particular portion of Scripture is indeed the 144,000, the Jewish evangelists who did indeed, if you will, as we believe, amen, persevered through the great tribulation. That's what this is. At the beginning of the tribulation, uh, God has John marked them out, by, you know, even by tribes, amen? And so we looked at that. You remember that. We looked at that. There was Dan was not mentioned there, but it's still the same group. It is indeed the tribes of Israel. This again, as, you, as we remember, right, 
in chapter 7. This is where they're seen at the beginning. I want to read that together for us again this evening. We'll turn back to Revelation chapter 7 when John first, first mentions them. Look at Revelation chapter 7. Again, just as way of reminder, again, these are the same group. These are the Jewish evangelists. These are the ones that God marked. These are the ones who now have, are going to see victory because they were persevered by God himself through the great tribulation. Look there, if you would, as we look at this together, chapter, or chapter 7. Look at verse number 2. And the Bible says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed and four hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Again, this is where they're first mentioned at the beginning, and now as we get towards the end, we see God again victoriously leading these 144,000 evangelists through the great tribulation. They do indeed, uh, as we're going to see again, they do indeed and are led by the Lamb in a glorious, victorious end to the tribulation. Now look at verse number 2 there again of Revelation chapter 14. As he sees, John is stunned by what he sees, this glorious vision of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb standing there on Mount Zion. And then he hears this. It, it's, it's an amazing thing as he, again, uh, speaks of those who have the Father's names written in their forehead. Look at verse number 2. And we, we really we see three things here in verse number 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. So again, we're getting a description. This is going to descript for us and tell us who's the voice. Amen? Because again, many speculations, many, uh, if you will, conjectures. But I believe we can look at Scripture and allow Scripture to speak and tell us who's speaking. Who is this? Who's the voice? Verse 3, and they, uh, or verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. That's important. That's a description of the voice. Where is, is this description given anywhere else in Scripture? Could it tell us who this is? Well, yeah, it sure does, and it can. Look at the second thing. And as the voice of a great thunder, again, there's another description. Is there somewhere described in Scripture that describes someone who has a voice of great thunder? Well, yeah, yeah, yes, there is. There's no reason to speculate or ingest things or, if you will, isogeet things in there. You just let Scripture speak. It'll tell you who it is. Look there, if you would, at the third thing. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And what a glorious scene that we have unfolding for us here. Again, John hears a voice from heaven, which I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches, is indeed the voice of God the Father. I really and wholeheartedly believe that Scripture certainly teaches that to us. And it is indeed the Father proclaiming his approval of the 144,000 that he has marked out. I believe that he is saying, remember, remember what Jesus said, amen, if we could go there and look, amen, well done, thou good and faithful, what, servant, here we have this voice that is clearly delineated in scripture, and he is pronouncing his approval on what has taken place concerning these Jewish evangelists, concerning his glorious work as we go there. So let's just look quickly. John says what? It's like the voice of many waters. Well, where in Scripture, can we find anywhere in Scripture where someone is described as having a voice like many waters? Well, <laughs> yes, 
Yes, we can. Look at Ezekiel chapter 43. And again, we have to allow Scripture to speak and allow Scripture to define what it is. Wild conjecture, as I always say, and conjunction and everything else that you can think of, any other word you can think of where you can make something up to fit it in there, there is no need for it. Look at Ezekiel chapter 43. And again, this is just, just a couple of them, brothers, sisters. There's many where the Bible defines this voice. Look there, if you would, at verse number 1. And again, what do we see here in Ezekiel? What, what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 43? Well, it's the millennial uh, temples <laughs> being built. There's some things taking place here, amen, again, tied to the millennium, which is what it is. And look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Afterward he brought to me the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many, what? Waters. There, there's, no, there's no reason to inject something in the text. The Bible defines this is God. This is God the Father speaking. He has a voice like many waters. And again, this isn't the only place. There are many places where his voice is described in sacred scripture as being like many waters. It is God the Father who is giving his approval like he will give Lord willing to those who are his elect saved during the church age. Well done, thou good and faithful servants. And that's what we see. This is what he's doing. He's giving his approval. And his voice was like the noise of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. There's no escaping who that is. <laughs> There's only one who's glorious. There's only one who shines gloriously in the earth and that is God the Father himself. Again, John tells us there, again, descriptively, that the voice is not only like many waters, but it also like thunder. It's like a great, loud thunder. Well, is there anywhere in Scripture, and again, brothers, we could be here all night. We don't have all night. But is there anywhere else in Scripture where it defines what this voice, a voice sounding like a great thunder? Well, yeah, I, I, there is. In fact, it's in John. Turn to the Gospel of John. And again, this is just one of them, but we see here in the Gospel of John, the Lord speaking, the Lord God himself speaking. And listen how the people who were standing there when they heard it, how they defined it. Look here at John, uh, if you will, John chapter 12. And again, this is what's so glorious about Scripture. It just interprets itself, and if you allow it to do that, it really does clear things up for you. Look at John chapter 12. Look there at verse number 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this cause came I into this hour. The Lord Jesus, listen, when he was born, when he was incarnate, when he was in eternal heaven, in eternity past, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He didn't show up here and get tricked. He knew exactly eternally what he was going to do, that he was going to come, that he was going to die on the cross, he was going to shed his lifeblood, he was going to raise again from the dead gloriously to save his people. He knew it. This cause, I came, into the, came to this hour. This is not something by happenstance. This is something that he directed, that God directed. The Father, as he's offering up Romans, right? Romans chapter 8, the God offered him up for us all. This is all God offering him up. And for this very hour, he says, I came. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm here for, to shed my blood. But listen, verse 28, look what it says. Father, 
glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now look at the people's response. God speaks. What did they thought they heard? Look there at verse 29. And the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it and said, it what? It thundered. They thought it thundered. God spoke, and again, his voice is like great thunder. This is God himself speaking and approving of the 144,000 evangelists, those to whom he marked. Again, that's descriptive of God the Father. There, there's nowhere else in Scripture apart from the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 where his voice is described exactly like God's voice, amen, being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the second person of the Godhead of the Trinity. He has the same attributes and is described just like him. Here, it is God the Father, the Lord Jesus. Remember, he's over on Mount Zion. He's, he's here. God the Father is speaking from heaven and saying, they have my approval. It thundered. In fact, it's 8 o'clock. Um, let us just read verses 2 and 3, and we'll just... Look at a couple of things here, and then we'll be finished up. So the Lord Jesus, standing there on Mount Zion, drew John's just religious affections to this awestruck sight of the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, standing there. And look what happens here. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Verse 3, <laughs> This is we've got to spend a little time on this because this is the second time in the book of Revelation where a new song is sung. There's many songs that have been sung, but this is a new song that's never been sung before. Why hasn't it been sung before? Well, it's because of, again, what God is affirming. Verse 3 there, the Bible says, And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 140 and 4,000 which were redeemed from the earth. And boy, there's a lot in that text. There is a lot there. What do you mean there's a new song sung? Why is there a new song? And why can't anybody else learn it? That's really an interesting and glorious thing that we're going to look at. But we see here, brethren, that one of God's divine purposes, one of his divine purposes that he has laid out for us here in our text, for his elect in the tribulation is to give rise to a new song. It, you know, you look, you, well, that sounds trivial. It's not trivial at all when you consider why it's a new song and it's never been sung before. This is a song of victory. It's a song of redemption. Now, there's been songs of redemption sung in the past. There's been songs of victory sung in the past. Remember the song of Moses? That was a song of God's glorious victory, and we're going to see that here in, in just a moment. But you look at this. This song has never been sung. This is a new song. That song, after having, if you will, a battle royal with the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. When you have a royal battle with the beast, the false prophet, and you have a, a, a battle with the dragon himself, that brings something new to light. That brings something, and I don't mean it, it textually, but it, it, it puts a new light on why it's a new song and why no one else can learn it. It's a stunning thing. The song has never been sung before because such a battle has never been fought before. Do you understand that? This is different. This is something that, again, these have gone through the time of Jacob's trouble, a time unequaled on earth. Never before has anything like this ever taken place, ever. That's why it's a new song, because this battle is new. It's a different 
battle. It's never been battled out before. This song has never been sung. I like saying that because such a battle has never been fought before. Therefore, it is a new song. And brother, no other man could learn this song. No, they could not. It is a stunning thing because it's directly tied to the tribulation experiences of the 144,000 evangelists. It is something that is tied personally directly to them, something that they passed through, that God had brought them through. In fact, look here if you would, and we really need to get finished up. I'm going to try and finish this up here quickly. But look back at one other time in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 when another new song was sung. <laughs> There's another new one. There's two new ones in the book of Revelation that are specifically tied to events and to those who went through those events. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse number 7. Look there if you would. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps. There's the harps again. We got some harping going on. We got some harping, harpers harping here in the same in the same scene. It's a different scene, but it's a like scene. We have harps, and they're harping. They're praising God. They're giving Him the glory. Why? Why is this a new song? Well, because, again, something's revealed that's never been revealed before, and it's an experiential thing, and I don't mean that to sound wacky, but it's something that they all experience, and they could relate to this glorious song. Look what it says there. Verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. <laughs> there it is. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is a glorious, global, worldwide thing that's being proclaimed here again. We're singing a new song because of the gloriousness of God and what he's doing in real time, here in earthly time. It is a most stunning thing. This, too, as I said, was a new song sung by the 24 elders about the redeeming power of Christ that they and others had experienced in this earthly time, in this real earthly time. It, it, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of like, well, how can I say this? All of us in eternity past, if you're saved, we, we looked at this, amen? Before the world began, your name was written down in the book of life. Amen? Well, it was written down in eternity past, but when, indeed, did you in earthly time, was your name applied? Well, when you got saved. Earthly time. In real earthly time. That's eternity. God wrote it down in eternity, but in earthly time you passed through. Me, it was a long time ago. Keith, maybe not so long ago. You're young yet, and uh, we have some youngsters here tonight, but People have been saved a long time. It is an earthly time. It is one of those things. And this is what we see here, unveiling here. In fact, look at Revelation 15, and then we'll close with this. Revelation chapter 15, there's two new songs. And here, there's a, I don't want to call it, it can I say this? It's, it's an old fundamental hymn. <laughs> it's like us cracking open our hymnals tonight and singing an old fundamental hymn. 
It's another song that's in the book of Revelation, but it's not a new song. It's one that's been sung before. It's one where they crack it open, as I said, if I can use that kind of that, that uh, visual, if you will, of us cracking open and singing that old song, What a Day That'll Be, or pick your favorite hymn that you're going to sing, What a Day That'll Be. It's my favorite. Brother Keith, he's got a nice plaque he made for me. It's very nice with that, and uh, it's, it's a glorious thing. But look here. There's a song sung, but it's an old glorious hymn of a song. It's a song about the victory of God. It's about God's victory and what he did way, way back in Exodus. Way, way back. It's not a new song, but it is indeed a song of God's glorious victory, his great works, and what he did. Again, a glorious reminder. Look at here what it says, Revelation 15. Look at verse number 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. <laughs> there it is again. There's that victory thing. You see that again? These glorious victories that we're going to see God doing and unveiling amongst his elect is a stunning thing. Had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. <laughs> there they are again. A lot of music going on, isn't there? Look at verse 3. And they, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O thou King of the saints. Here they are singing that glorious, I mean, several thousand year old song of Moses. Singing about God's victory. Singing about what he has accomplished and will accomplish. Isn't it amazing how it always goes back to him? <laughs> Do you ever think about that? You think about your life. You think about you as a person. And in the end, all of us are going to have to do with him. It's, it's an amazing thing to, to, to consider. Billions of people alive on the earth, and every one of them are going to have to deal with him because it all goes back to he who does indeed inhabit eternity. Amen? It's all about him. It's about what he's doing. And they sang the song, if I can call it that, the old hymn, the song of Moses about his glorious victories and what he's doing and what he's going to do and what he will do. It's an amazing past, present, and future. Amen? God inhabiting eternity. God uh, having all sovereignty and all things under his control. And his people, all they can do, again, as we started out tonight, all they can do is sing unto him glorious songs of his victories. Amen? Because they trust in him. They believe in him. They know that it is him, he, who is moving and acting according to his good pleasure and his glorious will. Let's pray together this evening. <clears throat> Father, again, we see in your holy and glorious scriptures. From one end to the other, the continuity of God. We see you threading all things together. We see you bringing all